0: The only announcement that I'm aware of this evening is that I just received in the mail a box of six copies that Kriegel, if you remember the spiritual warfare book that that we I had out in English, well, they still have it in print in Spanish, and they just sent me six copies of this so we can get more if there's a need for that. I've got... Uh, Three of them I'm sending out to some people already, but so that leaves us with three. Sandy has those, so if you want copies of that in Spanish, let me know and we can we can order them. But that will be uh, that's a neat thing to have now. So I'm probably going to give one of those other three to Orlando because see what he thinks since he has a Spanish-speaking church and that'll be good for them. <clears throat> Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's take a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're in fellowship. And uh, that means that... 1 John 1, 9, is, if it's appropriate, we're claiming that as a promise that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to not only forgive us of those sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so we're restored to fellowship and ready to go forward in the spiritual life. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's such a wonderful privilege we have to be able to come before your throne of grace because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. There on the cross, you imputed to him all of the sins of the human race. All of them were born in his body on the cross, and he paid that penalty in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God, your righteousness might be in us. And Father, we pray that we might not take this lightly, that we might be challenged by the fact that we are totally overhauled at salvation, made new creatures in Christ, given uh, every spiritual blessing, and that the issue now is what do we do with it? Are we going to grow, mature? Are we going to advance? Are we going to nourish our new spiritual life with your word? Or are we going to just let it go fallow and become uh, atrophied? And so that's the challenge every day, to learn your word, to apply it, to grow under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we study this evening, help us to understand these things a little more clearly and to see how to apply these principles a little more precisely. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We're in Acts chapter 16. We've gone through the issues related to what is known uh, historically as this, uh, as the Jerusalem Council. This meeting that occurred... Among the apostles and the pastors of Jerusalem in order to bring uh, together uh, the leadership there to think through an issue. This is so important. I've said this, I don't know how many times, but I don't think we always catch it the first time or even the first hundred times, God did not give us a systematic theology in his word. If he had wanted us to, us to have a systematic theology, he would have given it to us in that form, and we would have read it and put it back on the shelf and say, "Okay, we've read that. Let's go on to something else." But God gave us His Word in a way that incorporated a number of different uh, uh, different genres of literature. We have his, history, we have poetry, uh, we have wisdom literature. There are parables. There are epistles that teach and explain things specifically. You have legal literature in the Old Testament and you have prophetic literature. And God's Word is not restricted to one format. Isn't that interesting? You know, we all like one format. Um, we don't like to have, we, we like things to be kind of the same. But God gives a lot of different formats because each format addresses different areas and different issues. And what it does is it forces us again and again and again to go back and read the Word in a fresh way. And we never can plumb its depths. We never read it and say, okay, now I fully and completely understand it, no matter how many times we've read a passage, no matter how many times I've exegeted through passages. I always go back and see something or understand something different. Since the last time, I've read other passages in Scripture, read other sections, and it fits together in uh, ways I didn't fully appreciate or understand the time before. And so that's the pattern that we see here in a decision-making issue, because they have a problem, and the way they're going to solve the problem is that they're going to discuss it, sometimes in intense heated discussion, and they're going to base it on the word. And we see that as as Paul spoke, as Peter spoke, and as James spoke, they each went to, uh, to divine revelation. They each appealed to the one and only ultimate authority that we have, which is the word of God. I've exegeted and gone through the issues and everything, especially related to the uh, prophecy, the quote of the Amos 9 passage last time, and today, I want to or tonight, I want to wrap up the chapter by looking at it from the lens of uh, a little different lens in terms of what we learn from this chapter in terms of of application because there's a pattern there in how they approached the problem. And the key word, I think, the key concept, the category that we plug this into that we're familiar with is grace. We have a category in terms of a spiritual skill uh, grace orientation, and that's what's exhibited in this whole episode at the end it's grace and then there's another issue that comes up with Paul and Barnabas and again we see the same pattern exhibited so you have two problems one's a theological problem that's generated by um, by these uh, <coughs> jew these uh Pharisee background believers who are now teaching that circumcision is necessary for salvation. They have to address that problem. Then they have another problem, and that is blending Jew and Gentile together from their different cultural backgrounds and how they can come together without creating an explosive, divisive, negative situation. And then they actually have an explosive negative situation that occurs uh, in in uh, the subsequent uh, episode, which has to do with Paul and Barnabas and the decision as to what they're going to do next and how they're going to go, their procedure, none of this is theological or doctrinal, and that's where we live in a lot of different areas in our life is we're just trying to uh, make a decision. It's not necessarily immoral versus moral. It's not necessarily... Uh, theologically correct versus theologically incorrect. It's not conservative versus liberal. It has to do with, uh, non-moral, non-spiritual issues, but they're not totally divorced from using biblical principles and applying biblical principles to those conflicts and those, those problems. And what the one umbrella issue that, that sort of Wraps its arms around both of these circumstances is grace orientation. Now, grace is one of those biblical words that we hear a lot. It's like holy. It's like salvation. It's like faith. These justification, it's words that because we're so familiar with them, we don't hear them anymore. Uh, we, we, they, they lose their power through familiarity, the old idea that familiarity breeds contempt is 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 related to this. We just get to where we hear these words and they become somewhat tired, so they lose their punch Now, on the one hand, as a teacher, you have to draw a distinction between uh, a repetition in a way where you 're always using the same phraseology and the same definition, so it gets ingrained with people but if you don't mix it up and change it and freshen it up a little bit along the way as well, then people really don't hear you anymore. It becomes white noise. And the impact of that terminology and those phrases just gets lost because it's familiar and we think we've heard it before. I know I'm that way. I hear somebody get up and start to talk about something and say, yeah, 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 I've already heard that. My mind is somewhere else. Because I feel like I can take a vacation. You do that watching TV. Okay, I can follow this plot. That's fine. Then something twists or turns. And wait a minute. I've got to hit the DVR button and back it up and catch that because it didn't go the way I thought it would go. So we have to pay attention. <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about grace maybe in a, little, a couple of little, di- use some different terminology to try to capture the significance of grace. In the church age, we have this word grace that's been used by every branch of theology, whether it's Pelagian or Augustinian, Arminian or Calvinist, uh, no matter what, they all believe in grace. Uh, I've told the story before one time some years ago after my mother had had a series of strokes and I was doing a lot to help my dad with her. I was uh, at that time, I was on the phone with a friend who was Catholic and I said, well, I can't do that. I've got to go over and help my dad. So she said, you're earning a lot of grace. And it was like fingernails on a chalkboard. How can you earn grace? But yet, you see, there's a lot of people who don't hear a contradiction there. That's because these these concepts get distorted. So grace is really a profound and radical concept when we think about it. Not just in a theological sense, because not only uh because not only in a, in a theological sense do we know that that every world religion whether it's Judaism whether it's Islam whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses whether it's Mormonism no matter what it is every single world religion from Buddhism to to uh Mormonism operates on a quid pro quo concept of god that god's going to bless me if i do certain things it's a tit for tat, quid pro quo concept that, that everything is equivocal. If I do X, God will do Y. And yet, grace nullifies all of that. And that's the radical difference that we have, uh, in the scripture. Uh, life works on grace. You go out to lunch. You take somebody out to lunch one week. Well, what have, or they take you out to lunch. The so next week you feel like you have to re- return the favor. What if you're grace oriented? You ever think about that? Now it's nice and it's good matter. Somebody takes me out to lunch this week. I want to return the favor, but somebody may say, "You know, you're the pastor. I don't want you taking me out." That's grace. You have to get over yourself. Wow, that's a radical concept. I'm going to do something for you, and I'm not going to let you return the favor because that would break the pattern of grace. So we have to come to understand what grace is. But, but this concept of works, doing something for something, permeates. And I'm not saying it's wrong, because in a lot of society, we work a certain amount of hours. We expect a certain return on that. We invest something, we expect a return. There, a quid pro quo is not inherently wrong. Uh, it is when it comes to theology. And the term that is used, of course, in Scripture is the term works that salvation is not by works of righteousness. Titus 3.5, God says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So it's not by works. Works is completely excluded, and that's radical to biblical Christianity. Works are excluded. In other words, God doesn't treat us or deal with us on the basis of what we deserve. He's not going to return in kind what we give towards him, for which we're grateful because of that. If he did, none of us would be here. There would just be embers. Because that's that's what God's justice would would demand. But God is not only a God of justice and righteousness. He is a God of love. And this is inherent to his character. So he deals with us not on the basis of what we deserve, but on the basis of what is best for us, what is good for us, despite whatever it might be that we have done. So God, uh, grace really describes a positive action from God or from someone, anyone, a positive action that is neither deserved nor merited. It's doing something wonderful and generous for someone, not on the basis of who they are or what they've done, not because they deserve it, not because somehow uh, it's it's something that they've merited. In fact, grace really is treating somebody in goodness and kindness and generosity when they really don't deserve it, when they really have done something to deserve the opposite. And that's what we see in the pattern of God's grace. Grace is the foundation for all of God's actions towards the human race ever since Adam disobeyed God in the garden. From that point on, the human race, constitutionally, in terms of our makeup, in terms of who we are, totally, we're totally undeserving of any merit or any favor from God. But grace is God's pattern with man, and it comes out of his love for human beings. So I want to give you about five points just in terms of a summary of grace. First of all, it is the foundation for our salvation to overcome the deficit of sin, the fact that we, are, we have this constitutional defect of being spiritually dead that has to be overcome. We have the passage I just quoted, Titus 3.5 and Ephesians two eight and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So gift of God is appositional to grace. It explains grace. Grace is a gift. Now, even gifts get pretty muddied in... Uh, contemporary culture. There are a lot of people who, if they receive a gift, they think, oh, I've got to give them a gift later. If they give me a gift for Christmas, I've got to give them a gift later. If they, send, if somebody sends me a Christmas card this year and I didn't have them on my Christmas card list, and next year I have to send them a Christmas card. I mean, it just permeates everything. But God says grace is a free gift. There's nothing expected in return. There may be something that is uh, and, and n- not expected in terms of getting it or holding on to it, but there's something that is a responsibility once you've accepted the gift, to take care of the gift, but not to get it and not even to keep it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, there are so many phrases in that verse, that's why we like it, that's why it's a great verse, go-to verse for the gospel, because it clearly defines grace as a gift, and not based on merit. Same with Titus 3, 5, and 6, uh, that it's not by works of righteousness, which we've done. Totally excludes anything on our part. So salvation is based on grace. God does the work, and we just accept it as a free gift. The foundation for grace is a second point in this. The foundation for grace is a prime attribute of the essence of God. Just like you have prime, prime colors, I think we have some prime attributes. There's only a few things that, uh, that uh, statements you have in Scripture. You don't have statements like God is immutable you have or God is uh, omniscient, but you have specific statements like God is love, God is holy. Those are prime, what I call prime attributes. They are clearly spelled out uh, <clears throat> by, by Scripture as defining god not that he's not omniscient i'm not saying that but you just don't have these just overt bold statements god is x and you do you have god is holy you have god is love and first john 4 8 says that god is love We have to understand what what love is, though. So the foundation for understanding grace is God's love. So the third point is that how do you define love? And that's just a really difficult thing to do if you pick up any number of dictionaries, Webster's Dictionary, Collins Dictionary, Oxford's uh, English Dictionary. Everybody mucks this up because uh, love is always viewed from a human viewpoint as some kind of emotion. But when you look at Scripture... And our starting point for understanding love should be God, you have a lot of interesting things that a loving God does. A loving God uh, opened up the earth to swallow, uh, uh, you know, several thousand Jews when they followed uh, Dathan and Abiram in their uh, rebellion against Aaron and Moses. You have God uh, bringing... Uh, raining fire and brimstone on, on Sodom and Gomorrah and destroying everyone in the population, and that's a loving God. It's his justice, but it's not inconsistent with his love either. We have God turning, in judgment, turning Lot's wife into a pillar of salt because she turns around and looks back. Um, when Uzziah reached out to try to steady the, the ark, when the uh, cart kind of rocked a little bit and the Ark of the Covenant was jostled, he thought he needed to stabilize God, so he reached out to put his hand up to stabilize the Ark, and instantly he died. You've got to be able to factor that into love. Love is not just warm, fuzzy feelings. Love has to do with something, a much broader concept. It's not just this sentimental um Warmth that we often get in our shallow, uh, shallow culture. And so the best definition I found for love is that love seeks the absolute best for its object. It's pursuing the best for its object. But as soon as we bring in the word best, we've we've brought a value in, haven't we? We've brought in a value because there's good, there's better, and there's best. How do you determine best? Because too often we immediately Take that word best, and we add a little prepositional phrase to it that's the hidden text, best for me. I want you to do the best. I want you to do the right thing because it's right for me. That's what I think. But we have something that's objective there in Scripture, and that's why integrity has to go with love. And we only have that in the person of God. So He, we know what is best because we know his word. Since God is omniscient, Only God truly knows what is best for any of us in an objective sense. So we have to base this on God's word and on an understanding of doctrine, and that's something that for us is only going to grow. Uh, We love people not based on our limited, myopic uh, framework of what we think they ought to do, but on the basis of the righteousness of God and the revelation of God. That's the standard. And so, when we operate on that standard and only on that standard can we truly love other people, so it takes a long time to develop that in our lives Now, let me take this we 've gotten a defin- working definition of love and it 's the foundation for grace and Now I want to stick grace within a within another framework for us so, so under point number four i 've talked about many times in the past that there are five spiritual skills that we have to develop uh, In our lives, at a basic level, you will never get anywhere in the spiritual life. Everything else is based on mastering these five spiritual skills. And we've gone over these many times. The first is confession of sin. Whenever we're out of fellowship, as soon as we realize that we have to confess sin and be restored to fellowship. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just confession and then everything, oh, it just sort of happens. The Holy Spirit just sort of takes over and puts a straight jacket on my volition, and away we go. That's mysticism. We confess our sin, but then we have to make a conscientious decision moment by moment after that to walk by the Spirit, which means that we are in dependence upon the Spirit, but the Spirit doesn't operate apart from the Word, so we're... Uh, obeying the word and staying in fellowship basically walking by the spirit we walk by the spirit we're able to use that 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 illustration of using a walker as we go along what are the principles when you put that if you're old you ever walk with a cane or crutches you have a a a trust that you place upon that that instrument and that that's that's would be analogous to the next stage, which is the faith-rest drill. The faith part is we trust the promises, the commands of God, and the rest part is that we put it in God's hands. We cast our care upon him and let him take care of what he can take care of, and we take care of the aspect, the responsible part that we take care of. So we have confession, walking by the Spirit, the faith-rest drill. The fourth is grace orientation, because that's foundational. We have to have our thinking Shaped by grace. That starts by understanding the dynamics of the gospel, but it goes beyond that. It's not just understanding grace in the gospel because grace has to characterize everything in our life when we deal with people. Because we're constantly having to deal with spouses that are fallen corrupt creatures and children that are fallen corrupt creatures. And employers and employees that are fallen corrupt creatures. And we have to deal with corrupt government. And it's always corrupt. It's never not corrupt in the fallen world. All systems are corrupt at some level. We have to deal with all kinds of these systems. And we have the only way to deal with it and survive insanity is to deal with it in grace. So grace orientation involves a lot of different factors. It involves humility to learn the word and humility to submit to the authority of of God and the authority of his word. But But it works itself out in how we treat other people. One part of this is... A manifestation, of this is just good manners and kindness and gentleness and civility that 's part of grace orientation. We live in a world that we 've gotten so, lost so much civility and we 've lost so much in terms of just uh, everyday kindness and helpfulness because of the stress the hectic aspects of life and many other things that that we 've lost that element of grace in life. Then we have uh, doctrinal orientation. And that means we orient our thinking to the teaching of God's Word. We orient our teaching to the, our thinking to the teaching of God's Word. So those are the five foundational skills. So we're just going to focus on that one, which is grace orientation as it's directed toward other believers. And the fifth point in this is that this is sometimes described as the law of love. Sometimes this is described as the as the law of love and we have this in passages like the foundational passages John 13:34 and 35 where Jesus said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another now a couple of things to note there number 1 Jesus is saying that the pattern isn't like in the old testament it's not love your neighbor as yourself. It's love one another as I have loved you. So the, the the stakes are really high. The pattern is a perfect pattern. We have to love one another like Christ loved us. Second, this is this exhibits to others the fact that we are are Christians that we love one another. One of the most embarrassing moments of my life is occurs every time i go to israel and i go to we go to israel when we have various jewish friends along whether it's the travel agent or whether it's the guide or whether it's like some of the apac trips or something there's other people around who are not christians and you go to the holy church of the holy sepulcher the church of the holy sepulcher is built over the site where it is believed that Golgotha was located and also there were originally two churches there and then they've combined them into one. Uh, and then there's the site where the grave was located, where, where Jesus was buried. And you realize that this church is divided into five or six spheres of control, You have the Greek Orthodox Church and the Syrian Orthodox Church and the Armenian Church and the Ethiopian Church and the Roman Catholic, and they literally fight and go to war with each other periodically. And even the the, uh, Israeli army, the IDF, has to be brought in to stop them from fighting each other. And you look around at the church and you have to go through the whole history of the church and you have to talk about these things. And every time I do, I just think this is the most embarrassing thing in the world, that here at the, at the, the, the central site and location for Christianity, you have six or seven different denominations that will fight with one another over an inch of territory in the church. One story happened about 15, 16 years ago. A monk in one denomination was sitting in a chair, and as the sun moved and the shadow moved, he wanted to stay in the shadow, so he moved his seat over three inches, and it started a riot with one of the other denominations because he did not have the right to be on in their part of the church. It's insane. This has nothing to do with Christianity. That's why I frequently use the term biblical Christianity as opposed to all this nonsense that goes on in a lot of denominations. Now, some denominations are more biblical than others, but there are many that are not. They're just, they're just political. They're, they're just human systems of authority and drudgery and tyranny and have nothing at all to do with the Bible. Jesus said that the foundational command for us in the body of Christ is to love one another. This is repeated again two chapters later, same upper room period before he goes to the cross. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. I thought I had a slide on this. Maybe I, I do. I put it in the wrong place. There we go. John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Then John 15, 17, five verses later, he says, These things I command you that you love one another. That's a lot of repetition to emphasize this one principle within just a f- just a you know 30 minutes or an hour of each other. We get into other passages like Romans 12:10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Now that's a great definition there at the end to give preference to one another. Don't just go after stuff for yourself, but prefer others, let them get more than you. Uh, Romans thirteen eight. 8, oh, Owe no one to anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. This introduces the concept of the law of love, uh, sometimes called the law of Christ, the law of love uh, for the Christian life. And then Galatians 5, 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh or for the sin nature, but through love serve one another. So we're to serve one another, we're to give preference to one another. We're to be kindly affectionate to one another. Why? So that everyone will know that we are disciples of Christ. Other passages are on the screen: Ephesians four two, First Thessalonians three twelve, First Thessalonians five 9. Uh, four nine rather, First uh, Thess three twelve four nine, First Peter one twenty two, First Peter three eight. 1 Peter 4.8, Peter has a lot to say about love, so does John. Both of them are very close to him in the upper room discourse when he's teaching that. In fact, Peter's having a conversation with Jesus when he has says, love one another. 1 John 3.11, 3.23, 4.7, 11 and 12, and 2 John 5. Now, this sets sets the stage. I think I got that first slide out of order. Now, having said that, all that, the last 30 minutes for introduction, I want you to look at what happened here in Acts 15 in terms of the decision-making process. And the question we should ask after we read through the text, we understand the text, we understand the theological doctrinal implications, there's a pattern that's emphasized here. They are trying to solve a problem. Actually, two problems. One is the problem of theology. That's solved. That's easy. There's no requirement to be circumcised in order to be saved. That's easy. But there's still another problem. And the other problem has to do with people. Now, I know none of us have any problems with people. We all work fine with everybody. We never have a harsh word about anybody, never have an argument, never say anything grumpy or or, uh, impatient with anybody but we have to get along, and so the emphasis here, as I pointed out before, is on 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 how are Jews and Gentiles from these radical different backgrounds now today, this doesn't relate to today very much because if you go in the Jewish community, you 're not going to find a whole lot of Jews now you 're going to get a few if you're in some really um, um, ultra orthodox. Uh, Ultra Orthodox groups, then you may run into some problems. But um, when I was in Israel this last time, um, I took a drive. I uh, was taken on a drive rather through an Orthodox community uh, in the so-called West Bank, down in Judea, just just across the just across the border. And it was on Shabbat, Sabbath, Friday afternoon, almost Shabbat. Not quite. And so we drove into this huge community with these glistening white limestone buildings and the community's growing by leaps and bounds because these Haradim. Now, that may be a new new term to you. Haradim is the uh, Hebrew term for the ultra-Orthodox. It's not just the Hasidic. That's just one small group. And one of the things that always uh, gets everybody's curiosity when you go to Israel is that you see this variety of costume among the Haredim, the ultra orthodox? There are they have these broad hats that look like uh, almost like cowboy hats in some cases, and some of them will wear them kind of cocked to the right, some cocked to the left, some back, some straight. Each way in which they wear it identifies the group they're in. It has something to do with the rabbi they follow going back to sometime back in Latvia or Lithuania, back in the 17th or 18th century. And in the dead of the summer, in July in 105-degree weather, they're out there wearing their Polish-style fur coat and fur hat in 105-degree, because that identifies the sect that they're in. And I wish somebody would publish a book that would identify all the different. I saw some hats this time I'd never seen before, and then I saw one guy and he had on, he had on like like uh, true knickers, just below the knee, in white stockings, and a striped coat. I'd never seen that before. And uh, Lindy, the travel agent that I work with, said, "Well, he's part of some group. I don't remember the name," and said they are like jihadists. They hate the state of Israel. See, many of the Hardim do not believe that the state of Israel is legitimate because the Messiah hasn't come. So they're very hostile to the state of Israel. And this whole thing with the Hardim is a big issue right now in Israel politically because they're the pariah on the state. They're they're the recipients of welfare because they don't work. They believe that all they should do all day long is study Torah. And so they don't have to serve in the army. They don't work they just study torah all day long and they get welfare or in many cases they have, they also have uh, someone else in the family a a brother or cousin who works in new york or houston who makes a lot of money and sends them money so that they can they and their family can live and they they do not believe in birth control so that they, that's one reason that the jewish birth rate is going off the charts i think overall it's around 3.7 which is pretty high but what that does demographically because as the as the as israel puts a lot of money into into the into the palestinian community and they pour a lot of money in because why because you pour a lot of money in you no know, even if there's a lot of corruption it's going to elevate the the lifestyle and Of the Palestinian Arabs, and it's going to bring them into the middle class. I don't—they're not doing it for this reason. But what happens when the Arabs get up into the middle class? When any culture comes out of the lower class to the middle culture, what middle, uh, middle class? What does that do to their birth rate? It goes down. So the Arab birth rate is plummeting. And the Jewish birth rate is elevating, which is changing the whole demographic dynamic in in Israel because in another 20 years, this problem of having more Arabs than Jews is going to go away, especially with the influx of Jews from around the world. So anyway, with all of that, I'm just pointing out that even though there are some sects in among Jews that are very separatistic... For the most part, most Jews, they don't really care if you're going to have a little bacon or a little ham or if you're going to have a little lobster roll. or This just isn't going to be that big of a problem. They're not going to get upset if you have rare roast beef. This isn't going to be an issue. But in the first century, this was an issue. They had their strict dietary rules, and the Gentiles had theirs, and the Gentiles didn't think give it a, another thought. If they went down to get their meat at, at the local temple... To Jupiter or Aphrodite or whomever because that was better meat than, uh, the, than the other, than the non-temple butcher shops and that had, was the best beef because it had been, uh, sacrificed to the gods. And they would eat that but you wouldn't catch any of the Jews eating that because it was, uh, it was tainted. It was, as the text says here, it's polluted because they've been offered to idols. So that's part of the background to the sections we'll get into in Romans, uh, dealing with the weaker brother, and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, dealing with the, with the uh, uh, weaker brother and the eating the meat sacrificed to idols. So you've got a problem here in bringing these two people together from different cultures. It's not that it's right or wrong. It's that they just live very differently, and they have to... Come together as one in the body of Christ, and not make non-issues or non-essentials essential. They—they're making you don't want them to make non-issues issues. So they have to uh, not only solve the theological problem which you solve, but what do you do in bringing people together socially so that they—they they, uh, don't go to war uh, with with each other. Now, in doing that, you have to apply a biblical framework to the issue. It's a decision-making illustration. There's not necessarily a right answer or a wrong answer. There may be some wrong answers, and there may be several right ways to approach it, but what you see the apostles and the and the pastors doing is that they think through all the issues biblically, wrestling with what the Word of God says and boiling it down and coming out with some... Uh, suggestions. This this isn't a doctrinal uh, type of issue. And so I want you to look at the, the words that we have here in Acts 15, 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders. I, I don't think this is a bad translation. The, the Greek word here is dokeo. In all of these examples, it's the same Greek word, d-o-k-e-o, dokeo. And it basically means to think or to consider. I've got it on one of the slides. To think or to consider. But in the active voice, it's got an unstated or an impersonal use of the the word. And it it basically is saying it pleased the apostles and elders. The apostles and elders aren't the subject. Usually that, that phrase after is expressed in the dative case. So it's... It is a. It, it was considered good with reference to the apostles and the elders. It's an active voice verb, so it has this sort of impersonal uh, third-person uh, subject. It pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch. Notice verse 25. It seemed good to us. It's the same word, dokeo. It, it, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord, and then verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And then actually there's one more use that I didn't put on the slide, and that's down in in verse, um, in verse. let's see, um, verse 32, 33. 34. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. So Silas has to make another decision after they go to Antioch. Is he, going to go, is he going to stay there? Is he going to go back to Antioch? Notice, in none of these passages does it say, and they prayed to God and God told them to do X. That doesn't fit the paradigm for a lot of Christians. They want God to tell them how to make every single decision. They're going to pray until God gives them Peace. That isn't what the Scripture says. That isn't how the apostles operated. They studied the Word, and then on the basis of the Word of God, in a non-moral, non-spiritual issue, they take the Word of God and, and, and work it, massage it to learn the principles, and then they make a decision. Silas could go back to Jerusalem. He could stay in Antioch. God doesn't care, Okay? You know, when you get up in the morning, do you say, God, do you want me to put my right shoe on first or left shoe on first? doesn't matter. I'm going to direct your path. You're going to get where I want you to go because I'll take you there. Whether you decide to go out the front door or back door of your house this morning, you'll still get where I want you to go. So you don't worry about that. You're just concerned that you make your decision based on using the Word of God to the best of your ability, and I'll get you where, let me do what I do. I'll get you where you're supposed to go. You don't have to worry about it. If you may somehow decide to make a left turn when you should make a right turn, I'll work it out so you get in the right place anyway. Don't worry about it. Okay, so that's the that's the principle. Now, how did they make their decision? When they came to the decision, and we see this in three passages, it's very important at that time. I don't think it's so important today in terms of, of the specifics of this because these issues aren't in our world. They were in their world. What's important is how they made the decisions. So they, they decided there were four things that that were to be suggested uh, to the Gentiles that they not in, engage in. So if we look at verse uh, 20, uh, James is talking after he's... Uh, after they've gone through all of their biblical analysis and thinking, he says, therefore, in verse 19, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, we're not going to ask them to apply the law to be saved. But, verse 20, that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Now I pointed out that there's one thing that doesn't fit there, and that's really sexual immorality. The other things have to do with something else, but actually the pornéia does the same thing. So these four things are repeated three places in Acts. We don't find them repeated anywhere else. 15:29, uh, same list. Uh, 25, same list. Things offered to idols, blood, things that are strangled, and pornéia. So let's look at these words. The first word is the word for pollution related to idols. The word for idols is nothing special. It just means idol worship. But the word here, aliskema, uh, means pollution related to idols, and it describes spiritual uncleanness, contamination, or defilement as a result of participating in idolatry. So it has to do with ritual, key word there, ritual contamination, not real contamination, but ritual contamination. Often the phrase is uh, it, it, the whole phrase is schema, ideal trace traces. And often that's left it just reduced to the word for idolatry, and that, that occurs occurs in seven other places in the New Testament, First Corinthians eight, one, four, and seven, and ten, which is the passage on eating meat offered to idols. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10:19, and again in Revelation 2:14 and 20. What's interesting, if you look at those passages related to idolatry, they each relate not so much to the ritual act of worshiping an idol, but they are all related to food. Food is in the context of everything. So the issue here, once it seems that that we're talking about in Acts 15. Is the same issue we're going to talk about in Romans 14 and in and in First Corinthians 8? Is it's a it's a social thing whether or not eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols has this been tainted in a, in a way that that prohibits us absolutely from eating it? So it, the the idea here relates to food uh, contextually. So the conclusion, looking at that as a word study. Is that this is similar to the issue related to the weaker brother eating food sacrificed to idols. This same term occurs in the Apocrypha in 4th Maccabees chapter 5 verses 1 and 2, where it describes the attempt by Antiochus the 4th to compel the Jews to eat pork. And so it, again, it's a context of food. So this is really a dietary kind of issue, not an absolute moral issue. Porne is the second word, usually translated sexual immorality. What's interesting interesting is in the majority of your New Testament passages, it seems to have that emphasis on literal sexual uh, immorality or promiscuity. In some of those passages that people think it does, I think it, it it really relates to the broader sense, which has to do more with with unfaithfulness to a contractual relationship. I think that's what it means in the divorce passages. I don't think it's talking about sexual immorality or adultery where you have pornea mentioned there because of the next point, which is in the in the Old Testament in the Septuagint, uh, the word pornea as it's used in the se- uh, Septuagint is used about 50 times and it almost always relates to spiritual unfaithfulness. It's violating a contract. Now there are a lot of different ways to violate a marriage contract other than just sexual immorality. So I think porneia which is a much more broad term than moicheia which is the word for adultery is um has a broader sense in those passages than just literal physical sexual uh immorality. It's not a synonym for moicheia which is adultery. So the context is going to determine whether it's really talking about a moral problem, or once again, we're dealing with a situation of somehow be, doing something that's been involved with, a, with, a, with an idol, uh, idolatrous worship. Hyma is the word for blood, uh, or bloodshed. Usually it's used in relation to murder. There's about four different ways hyma is used, but it uh, usually is used in relation to dietary laws again. Not eating rare meat. Some of you will be very glad to hear that. That was not proscribed by the law. What's prescribed by the law is eating meat that has not been properly drained of blood. Just because you get some... Little red juice that comes out of your prime rib or your lamb doesn't mean that's, that's not what we're talking about. Anybody who's been a hunter, anybody who's been a butcher, Jay's not here today, he would back this, they, they, and they would, and this relates to the next word, which is pnictas, which means choked or strangled, that the blood wasn't drained. And in a lot of pagan uh, cultures, they would eat like blood pudding and things like that, where they were eating the blood. The blood was something in the scripture talks about the life is in the blood. There's a s- symbolic insignificance to that that was prohibited. So the issue then is, well, what are they appealing to here for these standards? And you will hear perhaps different people, or maybe you have a study Bible and it will say, well, they got these from the, the rabbis and, uh, and, and pre-Christian rabbinical thought there were certain uh, prescriptions for the dietary laws, or maybe they got it from Leviticus uh, 17 and 18 in the dietary laws there, or it comes out of the Noahic covenant. I think it's all three. I think that, that because there's a lot of similarity between those three, that it's there's certain problems with each view in and of itself, but I think generally within Jewish culture there was just a view that you didn't, Get, you didn't, you avoided anything that had a, any association with idolatry. And, and that, all of these things had that. So it was kind of, uh, if you kind of blend all of them as being present, because they were all there in the culture, it's not one or the other, it's just a, the influence of their whole cultural background for hundreds of years, uh, set them in a certain cultural mindset when it came to these things. And so the conclusion that we reach is that the source of these prohibitions was related to their Jewish social custom that had been shaped by a combination of rabbinic teaching, the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 17 and 18, and, uh, and, or the Noahic Covenant. And these three, three influences together had developed a mentality among, uh, among the Jewish background believers where certain social and eating practices by Gentiles were a problem for them, so they couldn't have fellowship around the table now that's a big deal what do we're Christians what do we do when we want to celebrate? We eat you're Jewish you know I, I got tired of defending us when I was in Israel because the Jews eat everything, and boy did they feed us on that last trip that you know for any reason, good, bad, let's eat. I said, Christians do that too. We're not so different. It was what they ate that was different, so they couldn't have table fellowship. They couldn't even sit down around a meal together. And so, the, what these restrictions are designed for is to help them be able to get together uh, socially without a problem. Richard Longenecker, a uh, scholar on uh, many things related to first century cultural attributes, states, that these problems should be viewed not as dealing with the principal issue of the council, but as meeting certain practical concerns, not as being primarily theological but more sociological in nature, not as divine ordinances for acceptance before God, but as concessions to the scruples of others for the sake of harmony within the church and the continuance of the Jewish Christian mission. In other words, it's just another manifestation of... Exercising the law of love toward a weaker brother, not making a non-essential an essential, not making a non-issue an issue and causing division. So that's the application of grace, the law of love here. So as we conclude our study on Acts 15, because there's a certain amount of repetition, it tells us what they decided, then it puts it into the letter, and the letter is covered in verses 24 to 29, which restates the same kind of thing that we had earlier. Notice in verse 25, we have the phrase, it seemed good to us. Um, verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. These are phrases that they uh, developed because it's the result of their Bible study. God did not appear to them in a dream and give them the answer to the test question. Okay, and that's the same thing for us. God has given you everything you need to reach a conclusion on what the wise course of action will be in any decision making decision you have to make. But it comes from a study of the word. You have to get your Bible out, study, you have to take all the wealth of doctrine that you've had in the past and use that. You pray, you ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction, but he's not going to give you the answer. You have to exercise your volition to come up with the answer on your own. Now, I want you to notice a couple other things as we go forward. In verse thirty, this is the the result. They're going to they make a decision <clears throat> to send Paul and Silas and others back to uh, Antioch with the answer. So, in verse thirty, we read so. Um, Verse 22, let me go back there for just briefly. Uh, then it pleased the apostles and elders and the whole church to send chosen men <clears throat> of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Brasabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Silas is also known as Silvanus. That's his Latin name. So verse 30, so when they were sent off, they came to Antioch up in Syria, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over it, uh, its encouragement. Now, that's a word we're going to find in verse 32, so I just left it for this screen, in verse 32, that after they they the people there rejoiced over its encouragement, that's the word parakaleo, which means to urge someone to do something, to challenge someone to do something, to exhort them, or just to encourage, to, to to point them in the right direction to give them focus and direction then we're told in verse 32 now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also so we're in that period of transition in the early part of the church age when the gift of apostle and prophet was, was, uh, invoked, was still, uh, available. And Judas and Silas were told here have the gift of prophecy. Now the gift of prophecy isn't necessary for, necessarily foretelling the future. It is a revelatory gift from God. So God is, the Holy Spirit is working through them because they don't have a, the, the New Testament yet to guide them and give them the content of their teaching. So Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. So they didn't teach a 45-minute Bible class. I have friends who've gone to India, and after three hours of teaching, when they were ready to quit, been told, no, 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 we travel 200 miles, and we want another three hours. Americans won't do that. 30 minutes and it's time to go to the ball game. So they uh they taught and this is the function of the the com- the communicative gifts pastor teacher evangelist prophet's is to teach to encourage and to strengthen. The word for encourage is parakaleo uh which I often translate it to challenge people to do what they've learned. And the word uh, episterizo, meaning to strengthen or support someone, to strengthen them in their spiritual life. To It's, it's comparable to, to edifying them, building them up. And we see this emphasized in many passages in Acts. Acts 14.22, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples by exhorting them to continue in the faith. Acts 15.41, and when he... Uh, went through that's Paul going, went, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches Ver, uh, acts sixteen forty so they went out of the prison that would be Paul and Luke and entered the house of Lydia and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed acts eighteen twenty three after he had spent some time there he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order in order, strengthening all the disciples so that 's a function of the uh, pastoral ministry as well to strengthen and you, and edify how? By teaching the word of God. Now we come to verse 34. Uh, after they had, after verse 33, after Judas and Silas had strengthened the brethren, after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. So they're going to be sent back, but Judas I mean, but Silas decides to stay. Verse 34, however, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. He had an effective ministry he could have there, and he felt like he would be more effective there than leaving. There's no direction from God, but he decides it's better to stay there. Now what's going to happen is because he stays, Paul's going to need somebody to go with him, and he's going to go with Paul. So by making a positive decision to stay there, it opens up. Alternatives and options for him in a few weeks, which is going to enable him to travel with the Apostle Paul. Now, we're also told that Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they're teaching and they are uh, proclaiming the gospel. That's the folks; they're giving instruction and they're proclaiming the gospel, uh, the message of the Lord. And again. I'm not I think in a lot of cases the word of God the phrase the word of God or the word of the Lord doesn't refer to the Bible. We read that we say they preach the word of the Lord. Well that's the Bible. Not necessarily. The, the word lagos can also mean message. And I think in a lot of cases uh the it would be better to translate it the message of the Lord with the gospel that's a specific message. They have a specific message that they're communicating. And so they're communicating the message of the Lord uh, with many others as well. And we come to verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord. There we have the word katangelo again, which means to proclaim. The word of the Lord, I think it's the message of God, which involves a, a doctrine. You have a closed canon, I mean, you don't have a closed canon yet, so they're not preaching the Bible. They're preaching the message of the Lord. They're teaching and instructing people, as we've seen. Let's go back to every city. Now, notice, God doesn't say, Paul, you need to go back. He's, in his maturity, he's taking the word and he is applying it to the situation that this is what they need to do. Now, then they get into a kerfuffle. Barnabas was determined to take with them John Mark. Now remember what happened the last time. John Mark was young. He couldn't hack it. For some reason, when they left Cyprus and went up on the mainland, Mark went home and Barnabas went on. Whatever the problem was, Paul decided he didn't want to have to wet nurse John Mark anymore. And so he doesn't want to go with him. Barnabas, remember, Barnabas' name is really an, a, a, a nickname. He's the son of encouragement. So Barnabas wants to help take along uh, those who aren't real, really ready yet, like Paul. When Paul first started, remember, uh, Barnabas went back to Antioch to get Paul and bring. I mean, went back to uh, Tarsus to get Paul and to bring him back. He's doing the same now. He he wants to work. And focus on John Mark and help John Mark. He wants to mentor John Mark so that he will grow up and mature. Paul didn't want to do that. That was what, that was how Barnabas was gifted, not what Paul's mission was. So they really have a disagreement over this. This isn't just a minor disagreement. Paul, Barnabas was determined he's going to take John Mark. He's not backing off. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. I mean, there's the emphasis. This guy can't work. He's got no worth He can't handle it. He wants to stay in bed till 10 o'clock in the morning. We're not going to put up with it. Then they had this contention. Then the contention became so sharp. And the word there for contention is the Greek word paroxysmos. This is a pretty strong, strong heated, emotional argument between Barnabas and Paul. We have the English word paroxysm. That's what comes from this, paroxysmus. So the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. They agreed to disagree. Barnabas, here's what we were going to do. We were going to go to the cities we visited before. Okay, let's split them up. You go to Cyprus, and I'll go to the mainland. And that's what they did. So there's no harsh words between them. Barnabas remains good friends with Paul. He has many good things to say about Barnabas and subsequent epistles. And Paul chooses Silas and departs, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches uh, once again. And that's that word episterizo. Now, the interesting thing is that eventually Mark grew up. And several times in later epistles, Paul is traveling with Mark, and when uh, when, P- when Paul's in prison in Rome, he calls for Mark to come and visit him. So eventually Mark got past that early growth stage, and he became a, a vital part of Paul's entourage and Paul's ministry. But what I want you to see here is that they treated this in grace. They had a problem. They had a personal problem. They had a conflict of vision, and they applied grace in how they d- they worked out the problem and how they d- divided their labor and went in different directions so that it did not become a destructive, divisive factor in the ministry or in the church. They, but that doesn't mean that they didn't have strong opinions and that didn't mean that they didn't express those strong opinions and that didn't mean that they didn't have a heated emotional argument about what they were going to do. But ultimately they worked it out under the authority of God and dealt with each other in grace and it did, was not something that they held against each other or had mental attitude sins about for the subsequent, uh, subsequent days and years. They moved on. God used both of them in their ministries, and they complemented each other in many different ways. So that brings us to the end of chapter 15, and next time we'll come back and start this second missionary journey in chapter 16. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go through this to be reminded of the importance of grace and grace orientation in dealing with the problems that we face and the people that we have disagreements with, always dealing with them in kindness always dealing with them not on the basis of what they deserve, but on the basis of your love and understanding what is best and what is right on the basis of your character. Challenge us with what we've learned tonight. We pray in Christ's name, amen.